us not to be too attached here, uh, to accept the death that we know is the means of growing fully, deeply into the love that you offer us. Help um, us get better, all of us, at listening, hearing, uh, listening for you around us, particularly in each other. Uh, so different from the world that we live in. Bless our efforts here. Um, ask a special blessing on Father and his travels. Keep him safe. And in this interim, when we um, don't have Mass, um, strengthen our efforts to stay close to you until he's back. We ask all of this um, in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <laughs> a couple things. Uh, I know that some people are not here. Um, who are away. Um, I don't know what the circumstances are. I know Dick is away for a week and um, some other people can't make it. You, you're all aware, aren't you, that, um, that this is going online. It's available online. If you go into the adult catechesis on the St. Francis website, you can click into um, the, I guess, the place they have for the, for the literature is prophecy work that we're doing. So you can always go back and pick up something if you can't make it. Um, and you know that I'm meeting twice a week with different groups um, on Monday night and then morning, so I'm doing it twice. And the lectures are never, never, like the talks are never the same. They're always different. So it might be worthwhile if you're interested to hear both of them. But anyway, they're available, so if you miss something, you, you should be able to pick it up. Um, the poem we're going to do this morning, can you pull it, pick it, uh, get it? It's called Supernatural Love. <clears throat> it's by a modern poet. She's a contemporary. And like most of the poems you know, um, here. Most of the poems you know, they're, they're poems that in some way reveal Christ. It's, um, you know that I have two purposes in giving the lyrics always, that one of them is so that you can hear the music of poetry, and the other is um, just to help you become more and more aware of what the poets are doing to make um, Christ's presence in our world more obvious to you. And I've not said this to a class before, but I think it's worth saying. Um, I'm going to say it probably a couple of times more because some of the people who've raised questions about it aren't here today, and I know, I know, I hope it will help them. It seems to me one of the values of music and poetry. You all know the, Orf the Orpheus story, that Orpheus went to the underground with his lyre. He, he was probably the first mythic image of poetry in the classical world. He played music and he calmed the beasts and he put to rest the things in nature. It was the, the ancient way of, of recognizing the power that poetry had to quiet our souls. When, um, when you go to an opera or a, or a live stage play, very often they have an overture. I think one of the functions of the overture is to quiet our critical mind because our, our habits are too critical. We tend to be too critical, too negative. Our minds are too sharp, particularly the more educated, the more, the more likely that's going to be so. The overture is meant to um, 
inspire, awaken, arouse um, a feeling of peace, of quiet, to, to calm the soul. So there's a medicinal effect in music. One of the one of the reasons, one of the things that's going on in lyric poetry is presumably, if it's really good poetry and it's put to music, it has more than just a rational effect. It's more than it. It, it speaks to us more deeply than just our minds can grasp. The pre-rational, pre-conceptual things that are going on through poetry that makes it different from all the other kinds of knowledge that, you know, that uh, are important to us. So, um, anyway, keep that in mind. It's just a good thing to remember when we do these poems. There's more going on than just what can be rationally taken from these things. I don't know much about the, the poet Gertrude Schnackenberg. She's contemporary. Um, um, I've only read a little bit of her poetry, so I can't speak about her poems in large, but, but I happen to think this is a beautiful poem. So, good morning. We just, we just made it. been my practice, I'm going to do it here. No comments or, or very few observations. I just want to say a couple of things and let the poem speak for itself. I, I'm hoping that you guys are taking these things home and rereading them because they deserve to be reread. The, the poem is, is written by a mother looking back at herself when she was four years old. In this moment when her father is pouring over a dictionary and um, he cannot figure out why she keeps associating Christ with the word carnation. Interesting, he's a sort of scholar figure. You'd think he would know. The, the word carnation means pink, means flesh. That's what it means. The incarnation means infleshed. That's what it means. So its root word is carnation. Um, it's a flower. I mean, what a lovely image in which to see Christ. But she's four years old. She has no clue about all this, but like children, she sees some connection. The father can't figure out why she's doing it. He keeps pesting her. He's gone to the dictionary to look up things. He's a scholar. And I have a feeling there's some ironies about it. That he, there's this image, you'll see, that he, he, his sense of things get magnified as she sees him through his glasses. It's like a grotesque distortion. I, I, I have the sense that he, he doesn't have a clue about what's going on with Christ. Um, but she's looking back, and it seems to me that she finds, in that moment, as a four-year-old, she, she had participated in Christ's life without being conscious of it. All of the imagery, the nails, because the French for carnation is clo, a nail, the imagery of nails, the crucifixion, the blood, she will prick her finger with a needle. She will be bleeding. That all of these things um, leave us with a sense that in some way, whether she knew it or not as a four-year-old, she was participating in an act of supernatural love, in some, ways in, in some ways in the passion. Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer. Tilting in his hand, his slowly scanning, magnifying lens, 
a blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger at the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye. There's the needle eye again, you know that. What's impossible for men is not impossible for God. God, this is amazing. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't do this. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed to study's gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb is the tomb associated with him. To read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor, trying to stitch, beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does, where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, a pink variety of clove, carnaccio, the Latin, meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret, bitter ecstasy, the stems squeak in my scissors, child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, the clove, the spice, dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads, from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth, beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, thy blood is so dearly bought, the needle strikes my fingers to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I've sewn, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnation bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ's when I was four. One of the ironies of the poem, um, child's remembering the, the tenderness of a father. The father, I, I, my sense is he's a scholar figure, but one of the ironies is um, you know, this theme that we keep talking, and I'm going to come to it again, how important language is and how well we hear words. It, it, it's as if he has, like the Cyclops we're going to meet, it's as if he sees only some one level of meaning to words. 
when clearly there's another level to words, the word that she's aware of as a woman writing, looking back on that moment as a child. Um, because of that line, remember, can give no explanation, but because she can't explain, she's four years old. Word roots blossom. That is, word roots incarnate. Because the blossom here is the carnation. So it's a metaphor for the way words flower, Christ. Um, word roots blossom in speechless messages, the way the thread behind my sampler does. Where she, does the father see that? He's a scholar. I don't think so. He, he's too used to seeing words on one level. So there are ironies running all the way through this. Anyway, it's a poem you should, you should take home and like the other ones. I hope you reread it. It's a, to me, it's extraordinary. It's so touching, this tie between this young girl and, and as a woman looking back. Her father, I'm assuming, dead by now, but I don't, I don't know. Did you start that? Okay. <coughs> um, I'm going to plan to continue our meetings on Friday, even though Father's not going to be here, because I've got to keep the courses in sync. If I wait three weeks for this one, I'll be completely out of sync with the Monday, and I can't do that. Because um, sometimes people switch during the weeks because of schedules. and So I'm going to plan to meet. Can we plan to meet at 9, 9.15 for you all? Um, sorry about the inconvenience. There's nothing I can do. Um, okay. Let's start today. In the last four weeks, you know, work on the Iliad, I've made some claims which I think most people would think are preposterous. Maybe, I hope you guys don't, you're still here. Um, one of them is that literature is prophetic and it gives us intimations of Christ. And I think there's a, a deeper thing going on in here that I've tried talking about. I'm going to talk about it again today. This thing called the Logos in nature. Um, I, I'm assuming since Christ was the means by which creation was made, that's what we get from John in the opening chapter, that he should be present everywhere. We should be able to find him. Um, and I asked the question, um, if God was the creator of the universe and present, was he at work in it before Christ came? And if he, I can't believe that he wasn't, because love doesn't stop loving, particularly if it's perfect in it and divine in its form. So the assumption that I had is that, in answering my own question, is that he was, but can we see him? And my answer to that, you all know, is that yes, we can. The pagan writers, particularly the poets, were amazing in their power for seeing something, even if they didn't completely understand what was going on. And you know from the last class we had on the Iliad that my argument is that there are lots of indications. They have this profound sense of the return of a king, that there, there, there's some sense of a parousia, a coming, somebody's coming back. And we know from the Iliad that when Achilles re-enters the war, there's the shattering cosmic kind of experience. So um, that wasn't just <coughs> a light moment. Uh, you missed the lyric poem. You missed the best part of the class. I don't. 
Um, let me add something to that because it's really important. Um, in a world that didn't know Christ or his spirit yet, was he not at work? If he was, wouldn't we find him where, we, where we'd most expect, where a man most struggled to be good, to love, to be just, against himself and against those forces which threatened to rob him and others of his humanity? Those very qualities God gave men when he created them in his image. Wouldn't we find him there? I want to add to that. Wouldn't we expect to find him where men were most aware of their failures? Yeah? I mean, we have confession. Um, built into our faith is some principle of self-knowledge that part of our growth depends on our being aware of our sins. I argue that Achilles is the only man in that book. I, I, I've read it forever. I can't find an exception to it. He's the only man in the book who acknowledges his own fault. He says, I let everybody down. Agamemnon's response to the problem is, the gods did it. He says, remember, we, um, he's the only man in the book who is truthful about himself, about a humiliating action. Um, so it, if we were to find Christ at work or his spirit, wouldn't we expect to find it where man most struggles to be good, to deal with these problems and grow in self-knowledge, particularly about one's own failings? So I argue that I think we've already got intimations there, and I gave other examples. Um, his heightened sense of justice or right, the way he gets angry when he's wronged, his acts of self-denial, his willingness to give up his life for another, the generosity shows his men during the funeral games, and finally, the mercy he shows Priam when the two hold hands and weep together. That if you set those scenes against everything else that goes on in the Iliad, they can't help it. He's not Christ. He's not a god. He's a human. And he's a human before Christ came. But it seems to me those are amazing things when you set them against everything else that goes on in the Iliad. Now, I want to just land on that for a minute. I'm going to make the argument today that what, what Homer's showing us is brilliance, that, that it is so important for a Catholic, particularly for a Catholic mind, is the sense of norms in nature, the sense of a logos. I, I told you about Benedict's. Regensburg Address, the sense of norms in nature. Um, that we have a, to the extent that we're Catholic and believe that, that we're not completely corrupted, we can look to nature for norms and, and struggle to live them. We have a help in nature, it's God's creation. Even in a, even in a war. Now lots of people would say that's absurd because in a war there are no norms. Everything's chaotic. That's exactly the picture that Homer gives us, yes? It, it's complete confusion. That's, why, that's one of the reasons it's such a hard book to read. Think about this. Think about this. Um, when Achilles withdraws from the war, Homer shows us battle after battle after battle after battle. And in every one of those battles, he's doing something to reveal something about what men do when they fight each other, right? So Paris and Menelaus fight in book three to end the war. And you know that Paris gets rescued. He goes off and makes love. In book five, Diomedes and Glaucus. Glaucus is one of the greatest Trojans. They fight and, and agree to, um, to not fight to exchange gifts because their fathers were guest um, fellows with each other. Book eight, 
um, Aias and Hector fight and come to a draw and exchange gifts. But repeatedly we keep getting men set against each other to show what motivates them, why they're fighting, how they, how they face death. So Homer's showing us that, is that one of the ways in which we um, discover something about ourselves is the way that we look at death and face it. Um, and I, I, I tried spending some time going over those scenes in which Hector stands out in lots of ways to me that are embarrassing. I mean, what he does, um, the, the way he uses people, and finally at the end when he seems more concerned about what people will think of him than whether what he's doing is right. So over and over and over and over again, Homer keeps setting these people against each other to, to indicate that there are degrees of right and wrong, good and bad, or, or valor, or virtue. And at the very end, there's that really telling scene between Achilles and Lycaon. Remember Lycaon was ransomed? He's an image of what goes on in Troy. Priam, Priam's answer to problems is to buy, buy his sons out of them, to ransom them, like a modern father getting his kids out of trouble all the time, or a mother. Achilles says, we're all going to face death. And I think I asked you that question, or made the remark, don't all of us have our reasons for not wanting to die now? You know, whatever they are. I've got a book I'm writing. It's so serious to me. And I struggle with this. I pray on it daily. What if God wants me? You know, I mean, the, the whole element of trust, will I get it done? Will I have time to atone for the sins that I've committed? Will I love the way? I, you know, and we've got all these things. When, when are, are we really setting them against that moment when we say, yes, I accept death or not? Will we, will we go to that moment, hopefully for the healing that it could offer us if we do? And my argument, and I think what Homer's showing us, is Achilles is the only one to accept death and what happens to him once he does. Nobody can defeat him. He has the shield given to him by the gods. He goes into battle. What's he got to be afraid of? What's he got to lose? So Homer is showing us that there's even a norm in the most extraordinary circumstances involving death all the time. So norms just don't mean when things are nice and settled. That's a, that's a totally modern notion because we think the end of life is security and comfort. It's the very opposite of death. Security and comfort are, the, are our answers to get away from death. So in the Iliad, I would argue in this book about apparent chaos, Homer is showing us that we can still learn something about who we are by the way that we face death, whether we accept it or not, and what it does to us when we don't, and what can happen to us when we do. Let me stop on that. So in, in that one way, it seems to me he's already anticipating pointing towards Christ even though this is a pagan world that doesn't know him yet. I also claimed that, um, that the Iliad was the founding work of Western civilization. Together with Genesis and Exodus, it seems to me that, that those are the ancient books of wisdom, the source of wisdom, that the highest kind of knowledge in the ancient world was poetry and revelation, and I've lined them up together you know, during all of our meetings together that the epic was primarily about a founding, a refounding, and that refounding could not take place without the help of the gods. That something divine was entering the human order to deal with a problem 
and out of it emerged this new spirit. And you know my argument on that. How many, how many soldiers in the Iliad understand what's going on? That, that it's only through the poetry that we see or, or participate in this refounding. That you can't identify it with bricks and mortar. It's not a new city. It's a new order that's um, offered through the divine help for anybody who has the sight to see it. And that makes the wisdom of poetry even more special, more extraordinary if you think about it. I'm going to go to Father and I'm going to go to um, Jared and say, I want to offer this course to kids because I think in some ways it's better than catechism. <laughs> They're going to chase me out of the church when I say that, but um, I'm really serious. I want kids to experience this so that they grow up with this. Uh, they should be getting this and they're not. Um, the third claim was that the, um, I mean, um, that the Iliad poetry gives us a special kind of knowledge. It gives us um, a perspective of holes um, that involve a divine action. Um, and um, last time, I th I'm not sure if I did it in this class, I get the two confused, but I've been um, asking the class to think about Benedict's words in the Regenberg address when he says one of the great dangers to the modern world is, um, is that we've turned our back in this, this Hellenic grasp of the logos. And he saw the two, grave, the two gravest dangers coming from Islam, Islam and um, fundamentalist Christianity. Let me put it this way, if this is our Catholic world, and this is Islam, and fundamentalist Christianity here. His, his concern was that the greatest threat was from two forms of fundamentalism. Islam is heretical because it denies Christ, is God. Remember I said, I think I've said in this class that Christianity is sui generis, one of a kind, sui generis, one of a kind. It's not one religion among other religions. Either Christ is mad to claim what he did, and, and it, he's been misrepresented because he could perform all these miracles, or he was God. The Islam denies that he's God. They say he's a prophet. So the Logos is removed. Um, the fundamentalist Christian says nature is corrupt, that the effects of the fall were complete. In essence, nature is depraved. That's Milton's line. It's, it's doctrines from... Um, some of the reformers. So that the only thing that can save us is sola fide, faith alone, or scripture alone, or... But if God made nature, then the Logos, or the Imago Christiani, the image of Christ, is everywhere in every person. And you know what I'm saying. I'm saying that part of what we're seeing in Achilles is this Imago Christiani, that that something of Christ is present in him, or, or what he, the extraordinary things he does make no sense. It's absolutely make no sense. So Islam is heretical, fundamentalist Christianity is schismatic. They, they still acknowledge Christ, but they take away his creation and all the help that it offers us, the locus, the slogos. Um, and the last thing I just want to remind you of is, you know, I, 
I talked about um, Bakhtin's um, contributions to literature and the distinctions he's made between the epic and the novel. The epic takes us back to an old world, an idealized world through memory, and the novel roots us in the present. It's more contingent, open-ended, and his argument, it, it, it's more democratic, and the epic is despotic, it's arbitrary, and I, and I tried to point that out. With all these prophecies of things that are going to happen, it's as everything's fixed. It's settled. It's not open-ended. Well, I, I argue this in my writing, but I, I mean, Bakhtin's not around, but I want to offer this to you because it's really important. Remember this. Even if that's true in the epic, what we find in, in one sense, we, we go back into an ideal world through Mimosine, through Calliope, the muse. She's the one who tells the story. Homer's the instrument. He's the minister. He's, he's ministering this divine word. It always ends up in a present here and now. Achilles steps out of that ancient world. He steps out of the honor code at the, the beginning. What he does at the end is completely new. And it, it has a divine sanction in his shield. It's nothing the men have ever seen before. So even if the action takes place in the past, I'm arguing that, that everything that Homer sees brings us to a present and something new, mysterious, something not everybody can see. And I'm going to argue that again in the Odyssey, in the love between a man and a woman, because now we're going into a domestic world. But I'm going to argue the same thing happened. What he's showing us is what is possible between a man and a woman in a marriage at home. Those are the two worlds, war, domestic home, a marriage. Okay? So even if we start with Bakhtin's premise, which I think is correct, I'm saying... I, I think we arrive at a different conclusion because what the, what the epic shows us is something very different. Homer brings us to something closer to a mystery in the present here and in a timeless here and now, both for Achilles, both for Odysseus and Penelope. Let me stop for a minute before we turn to the Odyssey now. But any questions or disagreements or... I hope this isn't a water hose. <laughs> Spilling over. You've left it in that image. I cannot, because I, I know how I am. I just think, God, quiet down, restrain yourself. Do less. Who brought up the water hose? Oh, it's Scott. It just, he was, I think indirectly, I think he was being kind to me, but he, I think he, I, I'm sure the first classes were overwhelming because I tried to give this overview and there was a lot there and I tend to do that anyway, so I know it's a big fault of mine. It was the image of a fire hose that you were trying to take a sip of water out of. Oh, okay. Um. <clears throat> I felt like I was drowning and I'm sure some way I was. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to resuscitate here. <coughs> no questions? No, don't listen. I don't. I don't. I don't want anybody to have apologies. I don't. There are no stupid questions. There, just put that away. When you have a question, ask it. I cannot tell you how serious I am. Okay. Right now. Well, I'm curious about the whole idea of our free will in all of these people 
it seems like they have no free will. The gods at whim just decide, yeah, we're going to help them, no, we're not. And it's like they have, they are just washing around in. So I'm just curious about that. How That's such a good, the, 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 a large portion of critics writing on Homer's world will say that there is no free will. And they use that line, which to me is so dumb. They use that line from Shakespeare's Lear where Edmund, I can't remember who it was in Lear, where he says, humans are just the flies, playthings of the gods. But you, that's from, as if Shakespeare believed that. If you read Lear, there's no way you could say that. But, so they take a quote from a character who in that moment is despairing and then use it as a, as a critical description of what goes on in Homer. Can anybody answer that? From your own reading, how, how do you guys, do you all feel that? Or can say your name, sorry. Lynn. Lynn. Can anybody answer Lynn, or do you have a response to her question? Talk to you. See, I, I kind of look at it a little bit differently. I, I saw the guys kind of sitting on the sidelines and kind of playing games. I didn't see it as them having, I, I felt like they had their own free will to do what they wanted to do. Men. The men. Yeah. But the gods were kind of like toying with the situation. They were they were looking at men as being their little playthings. That's kind of how I looked at it. I didn't look at it like the, the characters in the book, the, the fighters. Didn't, didn't, I felt like they had their own free will. They, yeah. were, they were doing what they needed to do for whatever purposes. But the, the gods kind of interfered every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And the and the gods just put a lot of uh, um, problems in, in their way. Right. More. Do you mean well, example um, of a <laughs> trying to think. Um, well they, they say that through the whole book. I mean that, that the gods are you know, that they're against us. Uh, especially uh, I guess it was the uh, the Achaeans, mm -hmm. uh, they, they said, they keep saying the gods are against us because they, they're not helping them, they're putting them. You know, that's one of the things Telemachus, I'm going to get but to that in a second. But they did build a wall and the, and the ditch and all that, so I mean, they had free will in that. They, that didn't stop them from trying. Yeah. And the Odyssey, Poseidon just, I mean, He's really got an in for Odysseus. Oh, and every time you turn around, it's, the raft is breaking up. The waves are coming down the world. I mean, it, it's just, he's out to get him for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah he gets it. Lynn, let me just offer you. Um, I don't think it's a prejudice because I love this work so much. It's because I've, I've wrestled with these things I, pretty deeply for ages. Um, I don't think they're playthings because the gods are too in earnest too often. When Athena comes down and um, when Achilles is ready to draw his sword and she says, put your sword. Or when, when she helps Diomedes, when Athena is in the chariot and she pushes the sword into Aphrodite or Ares, you know, and she's getting back at her own. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of playfulness there, but they're in earnest. I mean, she's, people are dying. And I don't ever see the gods laughing. But, you know, so they're not playthings. But be, because there is such a obvious discrepancy between the world of the gods and humans, it's 
hard not to see them as almost being light in comparison because all these men are dying and gods don't die. Although we keep getting all these backstories of revolts in heaven and um, violence and adultery we're going to read here. So I don't see them as play, humans as plaything. I don't see humans as not having free will at all. And, this, and I can't reconcile this, Lynn. Um, Achilles is presented with this choice. He has this destiny. We know that. As if it's going to be. But if, if you heard my response to that, I don't see how that's different for any of us. We're all going to die. And, we all, and, and what's interesting at the heart of that destiny is a choice. You can choose one or the other. And it's clear that Achilles has avoided the choice for a time. He's out of the war. When he comes into the war, he makes a choice. We don't hear any god whispering, saying, get back to the war. That's a choice. The fact that Agamemnon says Zeus's fault is a choice. He chooses to blame them. You know? So when we look at most of the men throughout, they're, they're, they're always doing something that results in some choice they're making or avoiding a choice, which is a choice itself. I mean, they're not choosing. My, my, my answer to your question, the, the problem that you're presenting is this. When I, when I try to imagine the Holy Spirit, this is a Catholic perspective, I shouldn't bring it in, but when I try to imagine the Holy Spirit working in our lives, I cannot imagine him not being solicitous. He doesn't force his way. When I look at most human beings, in my reading of literature, which is pretty extensive, the, our whole human predicament, from Homer to the moderns, in all the works that I've read about human situations, I mean, they're so rich and varied. What, what isn't shown in that world in literature? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm always aware that men make these choices in every work of literature, and they make them here. The, the, I, the, the extraordinary thing for me that Homer does is that he shows the God interacting with men affecting them. I mean, in this way, it's, it's more in line with the, the skeptical part of the question you have, and I know it's not completely, just you're wondering. Sometimes you get a description of an arrow going towards a guy and a god diverting it, so that you know he's, I don't see it as a play thing, but it shows that there's a supernatural agency at work in the physical world interacting with men in some way. But I, 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 I can't recall instances where they take away our free will. When I try to imagine the Holy Spirit at work and God working in our lives, my sense is that he does everything he can to work with the choices that we make and constantly at work trying to bring good out of the dumb things or bad things that we do. And I think that's one of the reasons we're grateful for him when I look at Homer, I see the same sort of thing. He, he, the gods can't stop this war from... Men are, men are violent. Homer's view is war and domestic life. Men are violent. And given their violence, what can the gods do to help bring good out of it? And what amazes me is that he could have shown the gods interacting at such a concrete, specific level all the time, and still in a way that shows he's protecting their free will. So. I'm amazed, not, I, I don't ever get dark about it. I, I, I find little evidence in support of the claim that men don't have free will. They're making choices everywhere. And 
what amazes me is he's so close, it's like revealing the spirit. That this divine activity is going on everywhere in people's lives. For me, it was when I, as I grew in my faith, I didn't start out, I converted, I was a convert to Catholicism. I was raised Greek Orthodox and left the church and it took me a while to get back. Um, you know, as I wrestled with these questions, as I grew as a man, I was always just amazed that Homer could have done what he did to show how active the gods are and still been protective of the free will that humans have. It's, it's, it's so much like what I believe. It's so much what, like what I believe in my faith that God allows us free will. We, we do stupid things. We sin. We do things we're ashamed of. We, uh, we don't love the, I mean, you know, you can go on and on. But he's always there and always working with us in a way that protects that freedom while still trying to bring it to some good. And the amazing evidence of that to me, now lots of people are going to say, this is a book celebrating the futility of war. I mean, I, I couldn't disagree more strongly. It's not about the futility of war of anything. It's strange. Hector is a good man. Even if he's got flaws, he's still a hero. It has this extraordinary outcome. This man did this extraordinary thing that nobody else did. When you look at what he did, even if it's isolated, you have to say, God, Christ, how did... When you compare it to the beginning, I mean, that, you know, that's the whole basis of my... I, I don't believe I'm imposing. You've got this wonderful symmetry in the book when you look at it because this radical change has taken place. How could Homer have seen that? It's amazing to me. It's so, in so many ways, so in line with our faith. A couple things. I mean, what, how you defined it was probably better than how I described it in terms of the God being playthings. But when I looked at when I looked at what was going on, it was more like Athena or Ares or Poseidon were symbolic of that kind of nudge you would get as you prayed. So, for example, these men were, let's say, praying to whoever their patron god was, right? And so they would get spiritual um, infusion, if you will, from these spiritual gods. And in and, and this, in terms of Homer, it was his way of speaking or demonstrating the fact that Athena came and whispered in their ear. So, because all of a sudden, when that happened, it was like there was this encouragement of, of the individual. So that's kind of how I read it when mm -hmm. I was talking about mm -hmm. playing. Mm -hmm. Because I looked at all of the gods being kind of a composite of the one god. That's kind of the way I kind of looked mm -hmm. at it. Yeah, yeah. It's hard for me. I don't quite, I don't, I don't think Homer has a concept of one god. But no, no, he didn't. I know, I know. I'm not just, I'm just <laughs> responding. I just, but I, I'm amazed that the, qualities of the various gods add up to so much of what we know is, or we believe are quality to love, to, to, and, and to deal with problems in a violent world and, you know. And the other thing that I wanted to um, bring out, which I thought was very um, symbolic, was when Achilles um, went into his treasure chest and took out the cup and poured wine into the cup. <laughs> to me, that was, that was very, to me, that was very symbolic, and I thought to myself, okay, at that point, he kind of broke away from Funny. that old tradition <laughs> of, I mean, th that's when I think, that's when his eyes were open, if, I, if you will. Yeah, yeah. 
By the way, I forgot. This is good. This is good. I forgot when we got there because there's just too much to cover here. I'm so aware. I'm just we're leaving so much behind. Um, in the embassy scene in Book Nine, when the embassy arrives, do you remember what Achilles was doing? Only person in the book. Only the only the only moment like this in the whole book. What was he doing? He was playing the lyre. Oh. <laughs> he was singing lyrics. <laughs> He's the only man in that book that has music in his soul, as Homer describes it. He's mourning. He's grieving. He's you know he's 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 right now in solitude. He's alone. He's separated. He's grieving. He's angry. He's playing the lyre. <laughs> oh. I'm becoming too transparent here. Okay, let's. The great themes of the Iliad, or the Odyssey, sorry. The great theme is homecoming. The great theme of the Iliad was Cleos, and you know that Cleos at the end has this radiant divine quality, and that's why I associate it with um, Father John's use of Hesed, this, this glory of God that it's the correlative, the effect of it in the human order, that there is this, this new spirit that enters into man that carries with it this radiance, something. The great theme of the Odyssey is Nostos, the home. And even when Odysseus comes home, we know from the prophecies in the underworld that he will not stay, that he will continue to wander, he will plant his oars someplace else. So Homer is quite clear. He's much closer to Augustine when Augustine says, My heart is rest. My heart is restless. My heart is restless until I rest in thee. Right? Something. My heart is restless until I rest in thee. That there, um, home doesn't ultimately mean what it does for a modern, that things are fixed and you're happy and you know, you're in a suburban life and everything's settled and everything's okay. There's always an element of nostalgia, that there's something more. But in terms of the book, coming home means everything because it, it means that something is possible. There's this norm. There's something possible between a man and, and a woman, a husband and a wife, that is possible given this Imago Christiani. What we'll see in a minute is that there are no homes in this book that are not in complete disorder. Disorders are a part of our life, our family life. We all know that. Um, Homer's exploring them here. So in, he's doing in the domestic world what he did in the Iliad. We're going to explore domestic worlds to see what the hidden disorders are, those things that are beneath the surface that in his mind we need to see if we're to come out of it in this journey. This is what it's about. In the opening invocation, um, we learned that Odysseus is a, um, has visited all these cities. So we're going to learn the cities of men, the different disorders. Um, he's at sea. Um, and we know from the whole book that the sea is not man's home. It's not where he's meant to be. It's a place of danger, grave dangers constantly face him. In one sense, it's an image of what we face in life. 
On another level, I believe it's an image of something like grace. I'll try to make that clear as we go along, but let me throw that out there. that It's a, like the gods in the Iliad. Um, the gods are present here, working with Odysseus while he's at sea. The sea is fluid. It's in motion. It's indefinite. Home is fixed. It's definite. So the sea is an image of those things in life that are in flux, that, 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 we, that are hard to get a hold of and dangerous for it. Because if we ever have the presumption of thinking we can control graces, we're in trouble. And Homer will show that in the book. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus, and he's called wise. He's different from Achilles. Um, <clears throat> Achilles is fast-footed, swift of feet. Odysseus is known for his wisdom. <coughs> Homer is showing a link between wisdom and suffering. In the modern world, we do all we can to escape suffering. Homer is showing us that there's something regenerative. I'll, I'll make that, or I'm going to come back to that next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about the root word of suffering. You might look it up, because <coughs> if you haven't looked it up, it'll, I think it'll shock you. <coughs> that there is something coming to us through suffering. When we were in New Hampshire, a priest said to us, a priest we were really, really fond of, I think he said it to Suzanne, and she, she took it to heart, I think, in a really amazing way. He said, be thankful for everything. And he was including suffering. Why? Why? What, what insanity can possess a man to say, be thankful for everything, including the suffering? Um, there's something to be said for that, particularly if you take faith seriously. But Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. And we have to look at this question. How does that contribute to who he is as a man and what he brings home? The fools, napios, it's in the first foot of every line. Whenever you come across that word fools, it'll always be in the first foot. The Greek word for <coughs> fools is napios, childlike. It means somebody who doesn't understand language. One of the great themes, truly one of the very greatest things of this work is reading. We talked a little bit about in the Iliad. How well does Hector read? Not very well at all. Polydamus kept reading the bird signs and giving it suggestions. How often did he take them? Rarely, rarely. So over and over and over again, we're going to be experiencing these scenes in which people are faced with reading something, hear, whether they hear. Prophecies abound in this book. You, you know in the first four books, there are lots of numerous prophecies. Do the suitors hear them? How well do they read? They blow them off all the time. They don't hear, they don't see. So this question of hearing and seeing in our world, to, to get past the surface, this is Plato's cave again. Can we get past the seeming of things to the underlying things, the deeper things? Do we get stuck on the surface? Um, which God is angry? You all know it's Poseidon because Odysseus poked out Polyphemus' eye. Polyphemus is one of the Cyclops who was a son of Poseidon. And so Odysseus, this is one indication of the fall again. 
Odysseus was protecting himself, doing what he had to, but in the process of doing that, he wounds a cyclops. Um, there, what Homer's showing us is there's a good in all things, even where they're bad. You know, like the cyclops are not particularly good people, but there's a good in everything in creation, and very often we, we do something wrong. We abuse it, we misuse it, and suffer the consequences for it. The three cities we, we encounter in the opening are Pylos, Ithaca, and Sparta, and they're all full of disorders. And all the disorders, most of them are the result of the war. Fathers have not been at home. Um, they've not been there to raise their kids. And even where they have, they've not done a good job. Um, humans tend to blame the gods for their problems. The old ways are dying out. Marriages are in trouble. Penelope's being wooed by a hundred men. They're not respecting the, the conventions. Um, Telemachus says, um, um, and Penelope says, um, to do what you should go, go see the father. They ask her to um, choose. You know, she goes through that, trip where, that trick where she um, weaves and undoes it during the night to put it off. And then they get really angry and then they threaten her. So the, the role of fathers in this book could not be more important. They're ignoring the father, they're not acknowledging him, they're not honoring him, fathers are not around, they're away, and where they are present, they, they're for the most part ineffectual. So the role of fathers in this book is not small at all. Home is awaiting a father. Um, now one last thing before we do some readings. Um, in the Iliad, Achilles was faced with Two choices, you already know that. To, to enjoy a long life, a long comfortable life, or a short life with honor. Which meant he'd have to risk himself because to live up to honor is costly. You have to, you have to face difficulties. Those are his two choices. Um, is Homer presenting us with a third here? Um, Odysseus is gonna meet Achilles in the underworld. Um, and Achilles is going to say to him, um, I, I wish I were the slave of a farmer rather than be lord of the dead because he was so heroic. That's what he took to the underworld. And what we've got is not swift-footed Achilles, but long-suffering Odysseus, wise Odysseus. Is there another option here? Now remember, there's two contexts. One is war, and I think we're meant to see that Achilles has to be judged against that context. He's at war. Odysseus is going home, and he's going to be judged against that. And it's going to, it's going to take him nine and a half years before he can get home. Like people who've been at war for a long time, he's not going to be able to go home right away. He's carrying too much in him. It's going to take a long time before he will ever be in a condition to finally help home be what it could be. So that's, that's what we're looking at. Um, let me just, I'd like to just read a couple of passages um, with you and then um, stop for the, the morning. Um, can you turn to the opening, to the invocation? Just as with the, oh, does anybody need books? Do you all have books? 
<clears throat> and if you all have you all paid? If you all haven't paid, can you pay Suzanne um, so we don't get stuck with the bill? Um, just as with the Iliad, this opens with an invocation so that we know that the word we're receiving is a divine word passing through home. She's telling the story. His role is ministerial. He's serving. It's a, it's a ministry. It's a ministry. Through words, through poetry. Tell me, muse of the man of many ways who was driven far journeys after he'd sacked Troy's sacred citadel. So this is the man of many ways. Um, the king is the most powerful piece on a chessboard. Yeah, if he's in check, he's right. Who's the most versatile? Queen. <coughs> Queen. She, she can do <laughs> she can do a million things the king can't. But if, the, if, if she doesn't protect the king, he's dead. Odysseus is known for his versatility. There's almost something feminine. Remember, Athena is the goddess of wisdom. And she looks over him as she did Achilles. He's known for his wisdom. There's something to his nature that's like that. The man of many ways. Prudence is finding a way. Women, men tend, I mean, look at the men in the Iliad. Their, their answer to anything is plow right through them. You know, if Achilles enters a room and there's a problem, what would he do? I mean, he'd take his sword out and. Achilles, Odysseus is a man more like a woman in the sense that he will be subtler and. What does he do when he gets home? He puts on a mask and he feels things out. If Achilles came home to that with a hundred suitors, what would he do? I mean, I hope that's good. Yeah, he'd just take out the sword. Would any of them stand at the end? Not away. Not away. So there's something, I don't know if the right word is feminine, but something more, more of the feminine in the Odysseus. He's the man of many ways. After he'd sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Many were those whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of. He's going to learn about the nature of man by the different cities he makes. He suffered in his spirit on the wide sea, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions. Even so, he could not save his companions, hard though he strove to. They were destroyed by their own wild recklessness. Fools, there's that word, napios, who devoured the oxen of Helios, the sun god, and he took away the day of their homecoming from some point here, from in Medius race, in the middle of things, tell me the story. Remember, what's in Medius race? We're in the midst of things in the sense of a family in crisis, that we, something happens, we enter it because it's so much a part of all of our lives. There's always some disorder that we have to struggle to deal with. This is where we enter the story, in the, in the midst of problems. Um, um, he's being detained on Calypso's Island because Poseidon is mad at him. The story opens with a, an assembly in Olympus with Zeus talking about Agisthos on page 28 at the top. He was thinking in his heart of stately Agisthos, whose Orestes, Agamemnon's far-famed son, had murdered. Remembering him, he spoke now before the immortals. For shame, how the mortals put their blame on us gods. For they say evils come from us, but is they, rather, who by their own recklessness win sorrow beyond. 
The faults that we suffer from are mostly of our own doing. There's, I was going to say, um, I mean, Homer is having Zeus say that human beings tend to shift the blame away from themselves, but it's them, it's, it's the men who bring about their own. Um, um, the problem of Odysseus being kept and the problems at home um, are brought up, and um, Zeus sends um, Hermes to um, help free Odysseus, and Athena goes to um, Ithaca to help Telemachus. Now, think about this, because the homecoming has two facets to it. Odysseus is coming home, we'll see that shortly, and Telemachus is trying to find his father. For the first time in his life, he's beginning to assert himself as a man. He takes on his mother openly. He takes on the suitors. He calls an assembly. He's very negative as a kid. When Mentes tells him that his father's coming to his home, his first response is, it'll never happen. Mentor says, your father's coming home. He says, it'll never happen. He tends to be really negative. Um, but he's trying to find his father. So what's interesting is father, the, the, the homecoming is partly about a father and a son coming together after a life of being separated. And we know that that reunion only takes place because of the help of the gods. Now, I just want to put this out in a modern perspective. In a modern world, fathers and sons are often estranged. Often. It's not an uncommon thing. How much help do fathers and sons have today from the gods in our own minds do moderns look at that problem in the, in the larger context of the gods helping? I mean, I wonder if we can ever solve it today with, with the shrunken view that we have. Here in the Odyssey, Homer's showing, Telemachus doesn't believe his father's coming home, even though he's coming home. He's so negative. Odysseus is coming home. At the end of the story, the two will come together. And what we see Odysseus doing is passing on the old ways to his son. And the two come together to join in that fight. So the outcome depends on both of them. But here, they're separate. Telemachus is struggling to find out who he is, who his father is. Um, I don't want to, let me just take the one moment. Um, um, a couple of things to, that are notable. Athena comes in the person of Mentes, who's a stranger to Telemachus, and then later she will come as mentor. As both people, she, she prophesizes that Odysseus is on his way home, and Telemachus says no. Homer's showing us at the beginning that God speaks through human beings. The question is, do they listen? Telemachus tends to be very negative. He doesn't hear very well. The suitors hear not at all. They completely dismiss them. Now remember that it's, it goes to this thing that I'm, this logos in nature. If God is present, he's present in men. If you no longer believe in the gods, what reason do you have for listening, for sure, in our world? Um, Homer's quite clear that God speaks through men. Um, the question is, do they see, do they hear? And Telemachus is struggling a little bit with, with that problem. But, um, 
on page um, in the first chapter, uh, or maybe page 36, Femios is the bard. By the way, he's the Homer figure here. He's the bard. He's the one that sits at home with the lyre singing songs. Um, what preoccupies the suitors? Drinking and eating and listening to the lyre. I mean, I can't hear this scene without seeing most young people in the corporate world at a bar with strobe lights, drinking, listening to music. Have things changed? The technology has changed. The psyche, absolutely not at all. Not at all. Given to their senses, getting drunk, wanting to get laid that night, have sex. What are the men doing here? Having, we know, we'll learn, if we don't know now, we'll learn, they're having sex with the maidservants. That's what's going on at this place. They're ravaging the home. Femios is singing, trying to bring some order, but it evokes all these sad memories. And Penelope tells him to stop on page 36, line 345. And the thoughtful Telemachus said to her in answer, why, my mother, do you begrudge me this excellent singer? She, he says, let him sing. It's the first time we see him asserting himself for something, even against the mother, that these stories have to be told. They have to be remembered. In book two, Telemachus calls an assembly and he confronts the men on page 43. Halicthyrses um, reads a bird omen. Two eagles turn on each other. Remember at the, at the top of 43? And he sees it as an image of what will happen to the suitors. What's the suitors' response? We care nothing for your prophecies. They don't hear again. So prophecies have been, and omens have been abounding everywhere. The suitors don't see, they don't hear. Um, and book three, sorry, I want to just go through this quickly and uh, just to try to help set the stage here. When he comes to Nestor's place, um, turn to page um, 52. Nestor and his family are, um, are offering sacrifices to Poseidon. So they're involved in rituals. When, um, when Pisistratos, Nestor's son, greets Mentor, that is Athena, guy, she's disguised as Mentor, and, and uh, Telemachus, they offer them food, welcome them. In the middle of the page, he gave them portions of the vitals and poured wine for them. Pallas Athena, who is daughter of Zeus of the Aegis, my guest, make your prayer now to the Lord Poseidon, for he is the festival you've come to on your arrival. But when you poured to him and prayed according to custom, then give this man also a cup of the sweet wine, so that he too can pour, for I think he also will make his prayer. That's actually Athena. So she's pleased that the son would honor, would do the proper things the son should do, is really what's going on here, honoring the gods. Um, Nestor tells the story of um, the Trojan War. The one, one line I particularly want to look at, line 115, page 54. He goes on for pages telling the story. He lost the son Antilochus. Do you remember who Antilochus is? I'm giving a test next week. <laughs> You're laughing. I mean, I'm giving a test. 
Antiochus, first time this, I didn't make the connection for a couple of readings. It took me a couple of readings to get this, but Antiochus was involved in the chariot race. Do you remember? He was the guy who beat out Menelaus when he took that sharp turn and then had this awful dispute. And, and at the end he said he was not going to give the mirror. He was going to fight for it. So the men were going to fight each other over a matter of honor. And Achilles helped settle it. And, and finally Antilochus came to himself and said to Menelaus, who was his elder, you're my elder, pardon me for getting so riled up. He gave him the horse. And Menelaus, both of them, magnanimous, because he'd been honored, gave it back. And, and that's, uh, I mean, it was an amazing moment if you compared with everything else that's going on. Antilochus died, and we only learn of this now. So Hester's, Nestor's grieving the loss of his son, and Pisistratus is grieving the loss of his brother. So for page after page, what we're getting are grief and memories full of pain. And notice what Nestor says on page 54, line 115. What man who is one of the mortal people could even tell the whole of it? Not if you were to sit beside me five years and six. Nestor is known for going on and on and on and on and on and not shutting up. And he says, if I, if I had five years, I couldn't tell the end of it. What's the irony there? Like he says, I couldn't tell the whole of the story. It's too long. There's too much happened. What's the irony? Huh? Yes, Homer's told it in 100 pages. And not only has he told it, but he's told the whole of it in the sense in which I'm using whole. It's not Cartesian. It's not the sum of parts. That's, that's a Cartesian mind. Aristotle, Plato, the Christian faith, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It can't contain it. Homer's the one that's gone to the center of it so it could show the whole. Could, heck, could Nestor ever get to that whole? Not if he went on for five years. Not if he went on for ten, would he ever get to it? Um, going over to 56. Repeatedly, some mention is made of the fact that Agistos killed Agamemnon. That it's treacherous to come home. And this is put in front of us the very first thing in the, in the epic. Agistos killed Agamemnon. Not even the king was safe. His wife betrayed him. Agistos, Agistos and Clytemnestra were lovers. They killed the king when he came. It's not home is not a safe place. I don't think I don't think I'm saying anything new to anybody here. Home is not a safe place. It's a wild place. It's where it's where criminals and murderers and all of, all of us sitters are. We all come out of homes. Um, it's not a safe place. Telemachus is reminded again and again that Orestes, Agamemnon's son, had the courage to kill his mother in vengeance for his father. He did this extraordinary act. That's, that, that, that was Zeus's opening line when he describes Augustus' murder. So constantly, Telemachus berates himself because he holds himself up against this young kid who had the courage to do that. And it comes up here. Nestor tells the story of the homecoming, the people who died, at the bottom of page 56. As Telemachus listens to this, Nestor says, oh, if Athena would just help you the way she helped your father. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer, oh, Nestor, son of Neleus, great glory of the Achaeans. It's all too true that he took revenge. This is Orestes. So the Achaeans will carry his glory far and wide. 
If only the gods would give me such strength as he has, Orestes, to avenge his dad's death. Take revenge on the suitors for their overbearing oppression. If only I could do that to help settle my home. They force their way upon me and recklessly plot against me. No, the gods have spun out no such strand of prosperity for me. There's that David. He's just given to be a negative, always. Now we must even have to endure it. And in turn, Nestor the Geranian, he spokes. He says, dear friend, since you've spoken about these things, um, they do say that many suitors for the sake of your mother are in your palace against your will and plot evil against you. Tell me, are you willingly put down or are the people who live about you swayed? Why aren't the other people coming to rescue, help you? Page 57 at the top. If only gray-eyed Athena would deign to love you, as in those days she used to take care of glorious Odysseus. Um, for I never saw the gods showing such open affection as Pallas Athena, the way she stood behind him openly. If she would deign to love you as she did and care for you in her heart, then some of those peepers might well forget about marrying. <laughs> the, under, the ironic understatement of that line is lovely. Let's stop for a moment. What's the irony of this scene? There. She's right there helping him. Yeah. And he's saying, oh, she won't happen. And Nestor, does Nestor see her? No. Why doesn't she just come out and say to Telemachus, idiot? I mean, why don't she knock him on the head and say, silly boy, I'm right here. Get a hold of yourself. Something. I think she's afraid of the other guy, other one of the suitors. Athena? Well, who, isn't there, there's one, I think the book I'm waiting has Well, if we look at the Iliad, I mean, she doesn't fight Poseidon. First of all, Poseidon and Apollo agree not to fight, and Athena takes on Ares and Aphrodite. We don't. Apollo's, or I mean, Poseidon's actually on her side in the war. No, in this case, so he's out. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and she's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because she does favor him. I think it's something else myself, but but I I not thought. I mean, there may be something of that there that. Because she loves Odysseus, clearly. What would happen to, to Telemachus if she stepped forward and said, knock it off, stop being a child, here I am? Why? It wouldn't allow him to grow in his faith or... To struggle. She would, wouldn't, wouldn't he learn to depend on her? If you, if you do everything for somebody, at what point did they ever learn to do it themselves? To grow, how, how can somebody grow into himself if somebody keeps doing it for him? She's the goddess of, she's the goddess of wisdom. Um, she's there helping him. If she were, if she were, I think this is what Homer's showing us, if she were to help him, it would, it would retard, it would slow. Um, I remember a sister saying to me once, you, um, 
You don't fish for a person. You teach them how to fish so they can fish for themselves. You want, you want people to grow up, to become, to, to become autonomous so they make their choices themselves and face hardships and suffering. That they're, I mean, ultimately, it's going to come to this again. I've got to, uh, next week when we meet, this, the, the whole importance for suffering and growing up and how hard it is for us to see that today. But God helps those who help themselves. Selves, yeah. Yeah, right, <clears throat> right, right. Yeah, he want, because I think he wants us free. I mean, I'm so glad for that. He helps those who help them. I, sometimes the way Protestants use that, I get troubled because it, to me it sounds so, it's, it's like an arrogant put down, you know. But, but there's a truth in it. In it. If, if you are really struggling to, to try to do whatever you're doing, the God, God will be there. Some way he will help. Um, we, we know that from the Iliad. I mean, that's, the gods are always there. And one of the ironies is that we've been seeing is they're not, the humans are not, we're not aware that he's always here. We can't miss it because we know Athena's next to Telemachus the whole time. And he still continues to be negative. But, but I think you've also hit on some other things too, that he's very angry, right? Who? Telemachus. Telemachus? Right. He's, yeah. he's angry. Right? Yes. So he has to let go of that anger. He has to open himself up to the greater world around him in order for him to understand and hear or see what's happening. And I don't think that he's in that place right now. So even if even if she were to, let's say, present herself in her full glory, I don't think he would still see her. Because no. he's blocked. Yeah. He's yeah. blocked. Yeah. He can't. He can't. Yeah. Just on a question here, by the way, just remember this, anger is not a sin, wrath no, is. So okay, right. Could, could Telemachus defeat the suitors at the end without anger? Can he go into that battle with them? Can he? Without anger? No, no, no. Could, could Achilles do what he does in battle without? Wait, let me put it this way, because anger is not a sin, even though the modern world has got, wrath is a sin. Anger, anger, if you look at St. Thomas, is the rectificatory. It rectifies. It is the one emotion that tries to answer right and wrong. It's the, if you look at all the, I'll go through this later at some point. If you look at all the emotions, they pair up with each other, moving towards some good or facing a harm that's in the way of the good. If you're trying to move for, if you're trying to move, get behind me, Satan. If you're trying to move for, towards good and something's in the way threatening it, can you get that thing out of the way without anger? St. Thomas would say, no. Christ said, get behind me. So can Achilles do what he does? Can Telemachus do what he's going to do later without anger? I just want you to be careful here. Because there's a, there's a, he, may, he may have to do that. I, I'm not sure. But just ask that question. Can he, can he finally accomplish what he does do with his father in dealing with those suitors without a measure of anger? Um, quickly, over on book four, I'm doing this too fast, but when he arrives, Menelaus is giving away a son and a daughter in marriage, so ceremonies are being performed again. They're not rituals sacrificing to gods, but marriages are being held. Um, Menelaus does the same thing. He tells stories of the war, and he speaks of his own journeys. Eight years, he was wandering. So in some ways, Menelaus underwent a minor, something like a minor wandering similar to Odysseus's. Um, there's two things I want to highlight here, and then I, I want to stop. When Helen comes down, she sees immediately a likeness 
of Odysseus in Telemachus and wonders if it's not his son. And um, on page 70 and 71, when she comes out, she offers the, the company heart's ease at the top of 71. Into the wine of which they were drinking, she cast a medicine of heart's ease, free of gall, to make one forget all sorrows. And whoever had drunk it down once, it had been mixed in the wine bowl. For the day that he drank it, it would have no tear rolled down his face, not if his mother died and his father died, not if men murdered a brother or beloved son in his presence with a bronze, and he who his own eyes saw it. Such were the subtle medicines Zeus's daughter had in her possessions, good things, and given to her by the wife of Thon um, from Egypt. She offers them drugs that will prevent them from feeling a sorrow, even if a father or mother died, how strong the drugs are. I just raise a question whether if that's good and whether she should do, and what it says about their their home and what she does as a woman in the home facing pain. Um, going over the last part of, of um, Menelaus's story involves his um, being um, landbound in Egypt and coming across Edothea at the bottom of page seventy four, who is the daughter of the old man of the sea. He can't get away on his own. Here, once again, this is so important. He cannot get away on his own without the help of the gods. He, will, he, he only gets home because he has the help of the gods and something that he learns here in Egypt. She tells him that he will learn the answer to his question, where the men are, whether they got home, and how he's to get home himself. And she tells him, go to her father capture him and hold on to him and force him to give you this information. If you remember the scene, they have to hide in sealskins, and there's that wonderful description of how smelly they are. <laughs> what a foul ambush it was on page 76. But here's what I want to look at. Um, top of 77. She warns him, says, he will change shapes. Um, but don't be afraid. I just think that don't be afraid. When our spouses or our children change, seem to be something else, how good are we at restraining our fears or penetrating something deeper that might be going on that we don't see beneath the surface because this is all about reading below surfaces. She says, lay an ambush, capture him, hold on to him, don't be afraid when he changes shapes. The top of 77, Menelaus is finishing his story, his narrative, and he says, so they hid themselves in these seal skins, and then the old man of the sea arrives. Then he too lay down among us. We with a cry sprang up and rushed upon him, locking him in our arms. But the old man did not forget the subtlety of his arts. First he turned into a great bearded lion, and then into a serpent, then into a leopard, and then into a great boar. Then he turned into fluid water, to a tree with the towering branches, but we held stiffly on to him with enduring spirit. When the old man, versed in devious ways, grew weary of all this, he spoke to me in words and questioned me, which of the gods now, son of Atreus, has been advising you? He will learn now that um, um, who got home and who didn't, that Odysseus is being kept 
at sea, but that he will return home. On page 79, he will return home. And then he says that Menelaus will finish his days in, or his life in the Elysian fields. Um, now two quick things before we finish here. One of them just skipped. Um, The title of Hemingway's the, the novel that got Hemingway the Nobel Prize is, um, in some ways, his greatest work. If you've read his work, William Faulkner said of that work, in, in a way I think sometimes only authors can. He said, "It's clear from that work that Hemingway finally discovered God. God's nowhere present in the work, but Hemingway said that about him." Um, this is interesting because um, the old man of the sea keeps shape shifting. He keeps taking different forms. So it seems to me at, at an allegorical level, what Homer's showing us is, and first of all, an image of the sea, that the sea is that from which all things come. It's in flux, it shifts, it changes. But it eventually turns into things, a tree, a lion, a bear. So in some sense, I think it represents the world of being. St. Thomas, what Thomas would say being in which all things participate, from which all things come. I am that am. That's Yahweh's naming himself. I am that am. He is. He is being. All things exist because they participate in being. They couldn't be what they're being if they didn't. So in some ways, I think Homer's preparing us for what's about to happen with Odysseus. We have got to learn to see underneath images, underneath seeming, in, in Plato's cave. We've got to learn to see under seeming, or the appearances of things. And we can't be afraid when things shift to know that there is something behind it. So that even if it's the old man of the sea and it takes different forms, it still is something. It's the old man of the sea. It, as its own identity. Because what we're going to learn in all these voyages that we'll look at next week is that Odysseus is going to confront all these strange things at sea. And he's going to learn, it's going to be essential that he learn them if he's to come home and be reunited with his wife. That's the first thing. The second is, what we learn about the homes is that they're all in disorder. <coughs> oh, here's what, quickly I just want to show this. Go back to um, Nestor. Um. Uh, where's the somebody help me issues? Three It's that passage where um, The wife appears in Nestor's home on page 63. Yeah, look at the bottom. 
Hector, Nestor, sorry, Nestor has gone on for page after page after page. They do sacrifices. They, they're very, on the surface, let me put it this way. On the surface, they're very pious. They, they go through all these rituals. I, I keep thinking about that sort of thing when Father says, or Francis says, get out of your pews. You know, how many rosaries you say, or the danger that we keep being warned of is that we can get so caught up in these rituals that we forget to do something. So they're saying, get out of the church, go take Christ to the world. Nestor's been going on page after page after page talking about the wounds of the past and their losses and what happened. At the bottom of page 62, and now the daughters and daughters-in-law of Nestor and his wife, Eurydice, they come, eldest of the daughters, raised the outcry. They lifted the cow from the earth of wide ways and held her. The only role they have at this entire visit at Pylos is raising a cry when they lift this hefter in sacrifice. So Pylos is a, war, is a home that lives in the past, in its wounds. Hector, it reminds me of the men at war constantly bragging. N Nestor did that forever. In the Iliad, whenever Nestor came up, he was always talking about his great exploits, what he did as a young man, over and over and over again. Homer knows that. He's got him here for that reason. He talks about the great things he performed in the past, again and again and again. So I'm going to say there's almost no place for a wife. Where is she? She doesn't exist in this home. She comes in to raise an outcry with a daughter, and they're gone. So what do we learn about the marriage there? When we come to Sparta, Menelaus and, and um, Helen are together. But like Pylos, this family lives in the past with its wounds. Um, Paris, or I mean, uh, Paris ran off with Helen. She finally, she says, she changed, finally came to her senses and came home, but the adultery is behind them. They carry that. When they first arrive, the, the guard is guarded. He says, shall we let these people in? So there's a, a guarded spirit about the home. It's already been violated once. We don't find that in Nestor's home. These things are not accidental. Homer's showing us that they carry the past with them. Helen's answer is to offer drugs to do away with the pain. So even though the husband and wife are more together, I, there's no sense in which they've escaped the past. They've come out of this past, carry the wounds. So all of these homes are buried in the past. They can't get out of it. They carry the wounds. The disorders go on. Um, so this is the point at which we leave it here in the opening in the Telemachi section. And now we're going to go to Calypso's Island. Odysseus will be released. Um, you know that he will end up in um, Sharia, the island of the Phaeacians. And here he will sit down in the middle of the book, and like Homer, he will tell his story of the wanderings. And it's there that we're going to encounter this whole hidden world that presumably these Nestor, Menelaus, the husbands and wives, they don't see that's going to be essential if... Odysseus is to have the relationship with his wife that he can. This whole underlying spiritual, metaphysical world, whatever we're going to call it, that he's going to reveal to us on the wanderings. That we're, we have to encounter that. He has to make that clear before he can get home. So that's where we're going next week. We're heading home, but we have this whole 
strange world that we have to deal with and ask, what's Homer, what's Homer showing us in this world? What, why is it important to see this before Odysseus can get home? Okay. Or any questions? You guys have questions about what the Telemachi, the opening section, or where we're going next week? No? I'm um, overwhelmed with all the names. I can't keep the names straight. God, I feel like I'm there, I'm doing it again. Yeah. No, no, but I, I enjoy it. It's just, just hearing about it. Oh, here. I like that then you can summarize this, like put it on the board so I can see some relationships. Without that, I don't. I'm very visual. I couldn't do I couldn't do this without I have to put images up. Without images I'd be lost. Telemic is the word oh you know Telemic. Tele and Makos means war. I've never thought about that. Or if I have I forgot. Tele means end and Makos I think is war so I have to look that up. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So I'm going to. You should find the. You should be find the Odyssey easier to I wanted to ask you if you could. I'm, I'm, Let me figure it out. Okay. Okay. Um, but put your name in the tree. I will pay you. I will pay you for. No, 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 kidding. This was very good. Oh no, really, really, it was it was special. All right. Our daughter. Our daughter. Is engaged. Oh, I can't. He gave. She gave, gave me the recipe. Our daughter is engaged to a young man from Italy, and when he comes from Italy, he brings cookies. They're exactly like that. But I've never tasted cookies like that except his and yours. What kind of cookies are they? Huh? What kind of cookies are they? What are they? Well, they're not like sugar cookies. I've never tasted. Well, it's just a simple cookie recipe. Because they're harder. Well, you make the dough into a ball, and you dump in water, and then you dump in sugar. Does she eat it? Yeah, she's got the recipe. But I'll make them next week. I so enjoy it. I can't tell you. I felt like I was back in Italy. Oh, awesome. Oh. You survived, or how are you feeling healthy? So I got my bike. So I'm amazed you. Life. So good. But, you know, this is such a You're not young. You're not young. Well, I think about, I mean, take, I don't know that I would do something like that. That's just my job. You were brave. So, anyhow, I've been Doc, how do you? Sorry, has this been blinking all the time? It's supposed to. It's supposed to hit it until it stops blinking. I did. Hold it now. It didn't stop. Wait one second. Hold.